This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 154, Islands. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. When I think of getting away from it all, I think of an island. Me here, problems way out there. It's a comforting way of looking at the world. But island living is not as simple as that. This week we will discuss God's plan to bridge the gap between the mainland and the islands, Robinson Crusoe conforming the island to meet his needs instead of the other way around, why wasting away in Margaritaville is not all it's cracked up to be, and the island getaway so near and dear to my wife and me. Let's start with what I've been preaching. The Old Testament is very much a story of us versus them. It's written from the standpoint of the Israelites, from the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it depicts this nation as being opposed to every other nation. They go into the land of Canaan and they cast out the indigenous tribes. They flee from Egypt because Egypt was oppressing them. They are oppressed later on by Babylon and Assyria and other nations as well. Foreign nations tend very much to be the problem. But there are snippets every once in a while of an indication of God's plan to include these foreign nations in his plan. That this is not simply a way to elevate the children of Jacob. This is a way to bring blessings to the world. From the very beginning, of course, the promise given to Abraham was that all nations were going to be blessed. Exactly how God was going to flesh that out in the Old Testament period was a little bit fuzzy, of course. But we do get little snippets of God's plan, especially in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah uses a word that is translated in different ways in different translations. The Christian Standard Bible uses the term coasts and islands. It's more or less equivalent to the New Testament term Gentiles, which is to say, the other people. For instance, in chapter 41, verse 1, Be silent before me, coasts and islands, and let peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, let them testify. Let's come together for the trial. The idea of God's word going out to these foreigners is an interesting concept, and Isaiah plays with this a lot. Most of the time, the message goes out to the foreigners, not just in Isaiah, but also in other prophecies, as a way of assuring the Israelites that God's authority applies to nations other than simply the Israelites. He is able to bring salvation at the end of Babylonian captivity because he rules over Babylon. He is able to thwart the work of the Assyrians because Assyria is under his authority. But we see in Isaiah a development of this theme. It's not simply that the other nations will find out who God is. The other nations are going to be offered an opportunity to partake in the things of God, even in the outlying areas, even in these islands. Notice in chapter 42 of Isaiah, in verse number 1, This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I put my spirit on him. He will bring out justice to the nations. He will not cry out or shout, or make his voice heard in the street. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on earth. The coasts and islands will wait for his instruction. This passage is quoted in the New Testament, of course, referring to Jesus. And it's one of many servant songs that we see here in the latter part of Isaiah. Starting in chapter 40, God is emphasizing here over and over again the plan that he has for his people, centering around this great servant who's going to come and bring a blessing to his people, the people who've been downtrodden for many, many generations. 
But here in verse number 4 in Isaiah 42, the coasts and islands are also going to be waiting for his instruction, not just for his punishment, but for his instruction. Who is more imprisoned, who is more locked up under sin than these Gentiles who did not know the God of heaven at all? Verse 12, let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coasts and islands. This is not simply bragging about the relationship that God's people have with the one true God of heaven and flaunting it in the eyes of foreigners. This is an opportunity for the foreigners also to come to the Lord. This comes up especially in chapter 49 of Isaiah. Verse 1, coasts and islands, listen to me. Distant peoples, pay attention. The Lord called me before I was born. He named me while I was in my mother's womb. And this, of course, is in the person of Jesus. God picks up the message in verse number 6. He says, it is not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the end of the earth. Now, clearly, the Jews of the first century did not fully understand this, because any time salvation went out to the Gentiles, they would balk, they would recoil in horror. But if we were to take Isaiah at his word here in chapter 49, and in these other texts as well, it was always God's plan to bring salvation to foreigners. And we see little snippets of this story even in the Old Testament. We see the book of Jonah, for instance, where God cared enough about the Ninevites to send them a prophet a hesitant prophet, but a prophet nevertheless. You see the story of Rahab, a woman of paganism, a woman of idolatry, who found faith in the one true God of heaven and eventually became even part of the line of David and the line of the Messiah. This has always been God's plan to include all of us. We are given a privilege to be a partaker in this as far out as we may be. I live on the North American continent, which is about as far away from Jerusalem as you could go. And I am allowed to be a partaker of the Messiah because the word has gone out to the coastlands and continues to go out to the coastlands and the islands. We have the privilege in the modern day of not only being partakers of the gospel, but being couriers of the gospel, taking the gospel to those who have not yet received it. Wherever our foot happens to land, whatever coast or island it happens to be, we can make an impact for Jesus Christ and hopefully at least allow Jesus to make an impact on that part of the world. This is what I've been reading. Alexander Selkirk was by all accounts kind of a jerk. In fact, he was such a jerk that his comrades on his ship that he was sailing on decided they couldn't take it anymore. Right about this time that he decided he couldn't take them. Selkirk insisted that he be put ashore on an island that they had come across, and they were more than happy to oblige him. They gave him some supplies, wished him well, and sailed off into the distance. And so he stayed there on the island for more than four years, making the best of it as he could while he waited for rescue. Eventually, he was rescued, of course, and made his way back to England, where eventually he came across an English writer named Daniel Defoe. And Defoe wrote a book based loosely on the story of Alexander Selkirk, which became what is widely considered now to be the first English novel, Robinson Crusoe. The idea of being completely abandoned, left to your own devices, to try to make something out of the world that you're left with, is a fascinating challenge, one that I hope very much never to face in my own life. 
I doubt very seriously I'd be able to rub two sticks together and create a spark, let alone make a life for myself in some deserted hideaway island. But Crusoe was able to do so in the book, not for four years, for 25 years. He winds up becoming a farmer. He becomes a rancher, a hunter. He is able to make clothes for himself, stave off enemies, really make quite a life for himself. Being stranded on a desert island is not something that anybody is groomed for in the modern day or in the 17th century. It's in those moments, though, those unexpected moments, when we call upon the life skills that we have been taught, the life skills that we may have tried to avoid learning, quite frankly, and find out what we can do with the world that is around us. You can be active or you can be passive in such situations. You can accept the world that you have, or you can tailor the world to suit your needs. You can catch a goat or two and breed them, build a stockade to hold them in. You can accidentally notice that you have a few grains of rice, a few grains of wheat. You can cultivate them, taking many, many years, but eventually have enough grain where you can plant and reap and make bread for yourself to sustain yourself for an extended period of time. It's your choice. It's my choice. Ultimately, it's not about our circumstances. It's not about the particulars of our environment. It's about what we choose to do, whether we are willing to take hold of the circumstances in which we find ourselves and make the most of it. Ultimately, we're all on a desert island. We're all isolated. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 tells us that we are all individually going to be brought before the judgment seat of Christ. And the things that we did in the flesh, this is going to be what determines what our eternal destiny is going to be. It's not as arbitrary as we might like to think sometimes. It's not a matter of the fates were against me, or I didn't get a decent draw, or I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. It's about preparing yourself for difficulties, for challenges, for obstacles that you're going to meet along the way. Exactly what those obstacles are going to look like, we don't know for sure. But we do know that certain life skills, certain faith skills, are going to help us succeed when otherwise we might fail. In fact, otherwise we almost certainly would fail. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse number 14 and following, But as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Crusoe did not especially get along with his father in the book. I'm sure that he was almost deliberately trying to avoid life lessons that his father was teaching him, thinking he didn't need them. But fortunately, they got in there anyway. We can be more proactive than that. We can be wiser than that. We can take advantage of the lessons God is trying to teach us, that perhaps we were taught by mentors in the faith, parents, elders, preachers. We're able to build faith of our own so that when we go out into the world and encounter difficulties, hardships, obstacles, enemies, we're able to utilize those skills. We're able to draw on that faith that we have built and accomplish something in the cause of Jesus Christ. 
There is no need for you to accept defeat simply because victory seems elusive. You can make your island conform to you. You can take advantage of whatever kind of circumstances there are to achieve something good, something noble, something righteous in your life and the lives of others. That's what being salt in the earth is all about, making a difference, making an impact. The world that you enter out into is not going to be as hospitable as you would like it to be. So make it what you want it to be. Make it something that honors God in your life. Make it something that encourages other people to honor God in their lives. Make an impact in your own personal island. Leave your island a better place because of your participation in it. And have the kind of impact on those that you find along the way so that they will also have the skills to deal with their circumstances so that they can grow faith of their own and so that we can keep the story going generation after generation. This is what I've been hearing. There are two kinds of Jimmy Buffett fans out there in the world. There are people like me, people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s mostly, people who are tired of the hard-driving, ear-splitting kind of thing that passed for music in our youth, people who are ready for something with a melody, something smooth and easy to listen to, something that'll take us away from our problems temporarily. And then there are the parrot heads, the very serious, almost cultish followers of this particular artist. Grateful Dead has the dead heads and Jimmy Buffett has parrot heads. People who will follow him from stop to stop, who have seen him in concert dozens of times, who dress up in costumes sometimes to go, basically live and breathe Jimmy Buffett. And these two kinds of fans, in a sense, kind of depict the two different ways of looking at the island-living, carefree, paradise-type world that we see depicted in Jimmy Buffett music. The idea of getting away to an island, getting away from your problems temporarily, is delightful. We love that. Living in Margaritaville is a completely different thing. And it seems like people, whether Jimmy Buffett personally is empowering them or not, do feel like there is some kind of permanent solution to problems simply by running away from the problems. It says that right there in the song, Wasting Away. And not even just wasting away, wasting away again in Margaritaville. Willingly subjecting yourself to a mindless, workless, pointless life. Characterized by laziness, ignorance, indifference. A lot of people think that's the way to fix their problems, simply by running away from them. And in the next segment, we'll talk a little bit about the getaway that might be appropriate from time to time. But this is not a long-term solution. You can't live in Margaritaville. You need to wake up. We as Christians should understand that better than most. In Romans chapter 13, starting in verse number 11, Paul writes, Besides this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep, because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, and the day is near, 
So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency, as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't make plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. An entirely fleshly existence, however much alcohol may be involved in it, is not a long-term solution. It shouldn't be even for people who live for this life only. It ought to be evident that indulging the flesh to the nth degree inevitably leads to destruction. It's almost inconceivable that it couldn't end up that way. For Christians, for people who live in faith, people who live in hope, people who look for heavenly things after this life is over, the idea of indulging the flesh incessantly for its own sake is nonsensical. It's a dream world. In fact, it might be better characterized as a nightmare. We want to put on the Lord Jesus Christ instead. We want to live a different kind of life. We want to wake up, take responsibility for our life, address our problems, as uncomfortable as that may make us in the short term, realizing that the difficulties, the hardships, the pain and suffering of this life are real, and they're not going anywhere. They're far more likely to get worse than they are to get better. This is part of the curse. This is part of the burden that is placed on us simply because we're living in an imperfect world. We don't have to like all of it, but we do have to deal with it. We're not going to deal with it, though, if we fall asleep, if we just laze away on a beach. What we need to do is take responsibility. There's a wonderful snippet of what appears to be an early Christian hymn found for us in Ephesians 5 verse 14. Get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's simply inappropriate for us to pretend like the world isn't what it is. And even more than that, to pretend like the world isn't going to turn us in a direction that we don't want to go. We cannot look God in the eye and say, you owe me a little bit of a vacation here. That's not the way this works. Our entire life is going to be a struggle. We can't escape from it. There is rest coming, thankfully, but not in this life. Our salvation is nearer to us than when we first started. So press toward God's plan for your life. Seize control. Don't settle for just running away from problems like your friends out there in the world do. Embrace your problems. Conquer your problems through Jesus' help. Be found worthy of the challenges that you face. This is what I've been playing. You've probably heard the concept of comfort food, right? Isle of Sky is our comfort game. And by our comfort game, I mean Tracy and me. The girls know how to play it, and they don't mind it necessarily. But if we're playing three or four players, we're probably going to play something else. Isle of Sky is Tracy's very favorite game. It hits that sweet spot. It only takes about 30 minutes or so to play. There are a lot of interesting decisions to make, but not decisions that would drive you into what gamers would call analysis paralysis. There's variety built into the game. It's not always exactly the same. But we don't have to relearn the rules every time we play either. We bought an expansion a while back that makes the game somewhat more complicated, somewhat more involved. We don't play that very much. 
because that kind of defeats the purpose of playing Olive Sky as far as we're concerned. We like it simple. We like it basic. We like what we know. It's comfortable. If we have half an hour or so to spend playing board games, likely as not, we're going to pick up Isle of Sky. We may never actually get to Ireland, but we can go to the Isle of Sky anytime we want to. We mentioned in the previous segment the dangers of living in a vacation environment. I fear that in our society, and I fear I am more of a partaker of this than I'd like to admit, we have this tendency to want to live to play. The quality of our life is measured by how much fun we have and how extreme that fun is. The nature of recreation, though, is to empower work. We are rejuvenated so we can go back out into the world, which is oftentimes unpleasant, and accomplish the things that are set out there for us. When we're able to find that island getaway and go there briefly, we can build relationships. We can build stamina. We can build commitment, especially when you have a partner. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 9, starting verse 7, Go eat your bread with pleasure and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already accepted your works. Let your clothes be white all the time, and never let oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife you love all the days of your fleeting life, which have been given to you under the sun all your fleeting days, for that is your portion in life and your struggle under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your strength, because there is no work planning knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you're going. Take advantage of the time that you have. Build the relationships that you have, especially with your wife or your husband. Fortify one another in the challenges that you face in life. Iron sharpens iron, the text says in Proverbs 27, verse 17. So find opportunities along the way to recreate, to refresh yourself, to build your relationship, to be that source of strength and encouragement that your life partner needs. Now, you don't have to be married to put this to work in your life. Maybe you have a best friend. Maybe you have parents or brothers or sisters. You're going to need help along the way. And the more time we can set aside to build those relationships, to strengthen one another, to take a deep breath in the trials and difficulties and hardships of this life, the more fit we're going to be to breathe out again and then go out again into the world facing those difficulties, and conquering them. And when we fail, having a support system to help us along. We need those occasional breaks. I don't know what the Apostle Paul did for recreation. The text doesn't tend to gravitate toward those kind of subjects. For me, it's board games. Maybe for you, it's something else. But whatever it happens to be, take a moment, refresh yourself, take a deep breath, and if possible, do it with a partner. And then take the strength that God gives you in those moments and go out into the world and make an impact for Jesus. Make a difference. We take the occasional rest here in this life, but we are looking forward to a greater rest. We're looking forward to a heavenly rest. Joshua leads the people across the Jordan River to the rest in Canaan, but that was not the real rest that the people were looking for. There's a greater rest. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, he says. That rest is in heaven. If you can work in this life, if you can find energy to face challenges and difficulties in this life, then God has a far greater vacation, if you will, 
waiting for you after this life is over than you could ever have for yourself. So instead of obsessing about making every moment in this life pleasant, instead, find the strength, wherever it happens to be, to address this life directly, looking forward to the eternal rest that's waiting for us when this life is over. And may God hasten the day. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.